You're listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, you can find us at faithchurchindy.com. Now here's the teaching. Well, good morning. We are continuing our look at the history of God's people in the book of Acts. And just the big overview, Jesus has commissioned his people to go into all the world telling the good news of his kingdom and the life and the forgiveness that he offers through faith in him. Now, up to now, we've been following kind of one group of people that have been telling that story, mostly to God's covenant people, the Jews, and mostly in Jerusalem. Uh, even though the gospel has also gone out to Samaria, these, these sort of, you know, uh, kind of Jews who accept the first part of the Bible, but they've also intermarried with other people. And then we also had the episode of Peter going to Caesarea and bringing the gospel to this Roman centurion's house. But now we're going back uh, in a little call back to a few chapters earlier, and Luke is reminding us, remember that persecution that happened after Stephen's death and, and how everyone but the apostles were scattered. Well, here's what happened with some of those people. Now we're going to find out what happens to some of these other people who have gone to this city called Antioch and are now sharing the gospel, not with God-fearers, not with God's covenant people, the Jews, but with Gentiles, with pagans who don't believe in the Bible and don't know anything about the God of the Bible. And that's where we catch up with the story today in the second half of Acts chapter 11. Our older son, Ben, got married last year. And as you do, of course, at weddings, we took the opportunity to get a family photo with all of our kids, all four of our children, and uh, with their grandparents, Amelia's folks. And I was just looking back at that picture recently, and man, when you look at it, you can tell those people are related. Like, they belong together. That's a Schultz kid, all right. That came from the Schultz factory. The, they all mostly looked alike as newborns, which is unfortunately sad for the way they came out, basically bald when they were born. Uh, Amelia's mom, apparently, according to Amelia, for her first birthday had to tape a bow to her head for the Christmas photo that she was in. But that's what our kids were like. They looked like us. They had our facial features and our eyes, and they got our similar height and body shape, and they all look like they belong with us. And then they grow up and they start engaging with some of the things that you're interested in. They, they picked up a love of reading, and they're swimmers, and they're tennis players like we are. And then they start to reflect some of your mannerisms, which is not always exciting, right? You remember the first time you caught yourself sounding like your parents? It was not a good thing. But whether it's your own kids or whether it's siblings or other people in your family, there are also things that set you apart and make you your own person. Amelia and I, for example, are both right-handed, and somehow three of our four children came out left-handed. Uh, some weird, we think it's probably Amelia's two sisters and her mom are left-handed, and so some recessive trait. I, the scientists among us could explain more how that happens. But we grow up and, and we start to demonstrate our own independence and our own unique personalities. You know, when our kids were younger and even to this day, they roll their eyes at my terrible dad jokes. 
And now they've turned the tables on me because I don't understand half of their humor, right? We're still part of the same family, but we're our own persons, and we have our own unique personalities. And God brings together all of those things, the familiarity, the similarity, and the uniqueness into making something absolutely remarkable out of all of that mixture of both familiarity and newness. And that's what's going on, I think, in this passage in Acts that we're looking at today. Luke is giving us a look at this church that sounds a lot like things we've heard before from other churches, but there are some unique things here that are very important and significant to what we want to see today. If you're paying attention, some of these things maybe jumped out at you. There's Outreach. They're sharing the good news of Jesus to people who don't know him. Well, we've seen that. Luke has told us every church has been doing that. We also see that after people come to faith in Christ, in verses 25 and 26, they're getting grounded in knowing who Jesus is and what his word says and what it looks like to follow him. We see in verses 27 and 29 that they're reaching out to share what they have with poor people who are in need. They serve people. This church has things that are familiar, that are kind of the family traits of every healthy church. Outreach and teaching and sharing resources. And those books come up over and over again. In, uh, those themes come up over and over again in Acts. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about those because there's something different that's happening in this church too. There's something new, and and it's those differences that Luke mentions here that I think are the point of this passage and what God has for us to see today. Did you notice some of the things that were different about these people? For the very first time, we're told in verse 20, some men, some Jewish followers of Jesus from Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and spoke to the Hellenists. Now, you're text may also read the Greeks. That's literally what it means. He's saying, up until now, the followers of Jesus have mostly been preaching to Jewish people, but now for the first time, they're preaching not even just to God-fearers, people who had some awareness and respect for the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, but to Gentiles who know nothing about the Bible. They know nothing about the God of Israel. They know nothing about the story of God's people. But they've heard the message that Jesus has died for my sins and he's alive for me to have a relationship with him that leads me into life. And they've responded to that. And they've become his followers. Look at, look at some of the interesting details around who these people are. Barnabas is mentioned. He is a, a Jewish believer who's originally uh, himself from uh, Cyprus, which is this island in the Mediterranean east of Greece and west of Lebanon. So he's, we'd say, a bicultural Jewish follower of Jesus. And then he mentions verse, uh, mentions Saul a little later in verse 25. And we've encountered Saul before. He's also a Jew, but he's from Tarsus, a city in modern-day Turkey. And he's also a Roman citizen. He's an educated man. And so now we have, for the first time, a multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-class Christian church with Jews and Gentiles together. That's why, at the end of verse 26, 
Luke makes this note that it was at Antioch that the believers in Christ were first called Christians. The gospel gives us a new identity. I think that's what Luke wants us to see here. The gospel gives us a new identity. You know, human nature hasn't really changed much since Bible times. We all want to know how to categorize people, and we try to figure out who you are by asking things like, what do you do, and where do you come from, and who are your people, maybe even what's your spiritual background? In the ancient world, the answers to those questions said something about your language and your culture and your religion. The Greeks had their Greek gods, and the Romans had Roman gods, and Asians and Gauls had their deities. As these Christians and be here in Antioch for the first time can't give a simple answer to that question. Where are you from? Well, we're from Cyprus and Cilicia and Tarsus and Phoenicia and Judea. Well, so who do you worship? Well, like the Jews, these Christians would have said, we worship the God of heaven and earth. And at this time, that these people were in the Roman Empire, which in one sense was fairly religiously tolerant. You could worship whatever gods that you grew up with, whatever gods you wanted to, as long as you also offered incense in your worship, a little offering to the divine Caesar. But Jews could not do that because they believed there was only one God, and they had a special exemption to not have to worship Caesar. But if you're followers of Jesus and you're not Jews now, you don't have that protection anymore. You don't have that identity. You're not a sect of Judaism anymore, so what are you? And so the people around them came up with this name for them. You are of the Jesus group. That's just what Christian meant. Like uh, in the Greek language, there would be Uh, Caesarians and Herodians, and now there are Christians. There are followers of Jesus, people of Jesus, the party of Jesus. Now, that's not the name they gave themselves. As we see in the New Testament, they would call themselves brothers and sisters, or followers of the way, or disciples, or servants of the Lord. This label that was applied to them initially was probably meant to be derogatory, Almost like, oh, you know, those weird Jesus people, those Jesus freaks. But eventually, these followers of Jesus took it up and it became their identity. And it's significant because what it's telling us is that my identity as a follower of Jesus is not grounded in my religious upbringing, it's not my ethnic background, not my nationality. Not my language. It's not built around personalities or ministries or teachers that I'm following. My identity is grounded in the fact that I belong to Jesus. He is my life. He's my Savior. And all those other things about me are important. They don't get erased, but they're not fundamentally who I am. What this label originally meant in Antioch, is that you are identified with Jesus in your daily life, in your observable actions, in your speech, in your priorities, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, 
The way you spend your energy, the things that you love, the things that you accept, the things that you reject are all shaped by your following Jesus and being identified with him. And so the question for us this morning is, are you a Christian in that way? Would you call yourself a Christian? And if so, why? Is it a cultural badge? Is it just something you've grown up with? Is it just the easiest way to identify yourself in the culture? Or does it mean that Jesus is Lord, the risen Christ is my Lord, and I am following him with my life? And he is what my life is about. One pastor asks a question this way. If you were taken into court and charged with the crime of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would a jury be able to say, there's evidence in this person's life that convinces me they belong to Jesus and they're following him and he is what their life is about? Because there's all kinds of things that, that we combine with faith in Jesus or positions on politics or social issues or moral issues or theologies. And we have to be careful that we're not attaching our identity in Jesus in a way that tells people, you know, to be a real Christian, you have to agree with me about Calvinism or Arminianism or whether the miraculous gifts in the New Testament continue or whether they ended or what is the role of Israel in the end times and what is it going to look like when Jesus returns. And, you know, to be a real Christian, you need to do these things and not do those things and believe these particular details of theology. No, the, these people are saying we have an identity that is, that is bigger than all that, that, that is overarching over all of our religious and cultural and ethnic and theological differences that says we are united because we belong to Jesus and we want to figure out how to live that out together. Are you willing to be different in that way from, from a culture that wants to sort of domesticate Christianity and Jesus and, and put it into a nice little box. Because Jesus doesn't fit into our boxes. He doesn't fit into our categories. He's, he's over all of those categories in a way that makes him the center of who we are and how we see ourselves and how we live in this world. And, and that's because the gospel gives us a new identity and how that gets lived out, we see in this passage, is the gospel then also gives us new priorities. The gospel gives us new priorities. Look again back in verse 22. Remember the, the report of these Gentiles, a great number, coming to faith in the Lord, comes to the church in Jerusalem, and they send Barnabas to Antioch. Now, we've met Barnabas before, you may remember, back in Acts chapter 4. His given name was Joseph, but nobody calls him Joseph. We call him Barnabas because he picked up this nickname, which literally means a son of encouragement. He was so identified by a life of encouragement and support and help that that's what they called him. So, the church in Jerusalem sends this man Barnabas, this encourager, to them. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast hearts. 
I wish we had time. I'd love to sit down and spend an hour just digging into this passage. What does it look like when we see the grace of God? There's something in these people that is an outward expression of God's goodness and kindness that is just pouring out of their lives. But he comes, Barnabas comes to them, this son of encouragement, and he encourages them to remain faithful to the Lord. What is this that is significant here? There's something in Barnabas' name that is actually connected to what he's doing. He is a son of encouragement or exhortation, and he goes there to bring encouragement or exhortation. The, the reason that your Bibles may have different words there is because it's a rich Greek word that is hard for any one English word to convey. It, you can see encouragement or exhortation. Uh, when you see a word like that in the Bible that has multiple translations, it's probably because it's something we're meant to reflect on and something that we don't convey easily in one word in English. It, underneath all of this, Barnabas's nickname and the thing that he's doing here is this Greek word parakaleo. There's two parts to this word. That's, it's kind of a combination word. Kaleo means to call out, to direct, to point towards. It, it's a strong kind of commanding word, whereas Para, the prefix, which we've carried over into English, means to come alongside, to be near, like paramedic or paralegal. It's to be sympathetic. It's to support. And if you sense a, a bit of tension between the two parts of this word, you're right, which is why it's hard to get across in any one English word. To call is forceful. It's to say, here's where you need to go. Here's what you need to do. We're going to take that hill. We're going to charge. This is the plan. But the word para means to be sympathetic, to be gentle, to be tender, to come alongside, almost standing in their shoes. So it's, it's, a, it's a strong, gentle word. It's sympathetic, loving insistence on the truth. It's an incredible mixture of Truth and love, which was exemplified in the life of this person, Barnabas, and is part of what God is using here uniquely to build these people up as they walk with Jesus. We cannot grow to be the people that God intends us to be except in this environment of Biblical encouragement, exhortation is an older word that we sometimes use. Because we need people who, who are not so overly gentle that they just affirm us and not so impatient and unloving that they just command us and tell us what to do. You know, I, I need someone that can do both of those things and we need to be those kinds of people for one another. Because we'll never change unless we are surrounded in community with one another in this kind of parakaleo ministry. Because if I come at you with just truth, but it's not patient and kind and loving, it's easy to become defensive and just dismiss it. 
But on the other hand, if I come at you just with love and kindness and gentleness, we'll never change because I have no motivation to change. And, and change only comes when I'm really challenged to see that where I am is not good and healthy. But if all I'm doing is saying, well, that's all right. I mean, it's been very hard and, and I understand and God accepts you where you are, which is true. But it also has to go with, and here is where we need to go together from here. The reason why this is so significant and why this is so important and why it's so incredibly hard is because none of us are naturally like this in our temperament. We all default to, to one or the other, don't we? Towards being more gentle and sympathetic and understanding or being more directive and, and commanding and telling people what they ought to be doing. And yet we can't really grow to maturity unless we're all together seeking to grow to be these kind of people. That's what's growing this church. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose in verse 24 because he was a good man full of the Spirit and a great many people were added to the Lord through this ministry. We need people who... Don't just bark at us and say, man, you really shouldn't have said that. And we don't need people who just come along and say, oh, that's all right. It's, it's no big deal. We need to say things like, that sounded kind of harsh. Are you okay? What's going on? From, from a position of caring that invites people to say, maybe we even step into it and say, like, I understand where you're coming from. I, I know that's frustrating. I know that's hard. I know that's difficult. I've been there. Let's work through this together. It's, it's not just the fact that we're not naturally these kind of people. I mean, our, our cultures tend to not bring together truth and love. On the one hand, we have some cultures where, you know, we just tell people, what they're supposed to do, and, and it's a, a list of duty and commandments. That's, it's all directive. A culture with a lot of truth and maybe not a lot of love. On the other hand, in our, in our Western culture anymore, we get a lot of self-identity out of listening to our hearts and doing whatever seems good to us. We want to follow our dreams. We want to be affirmed. We want love. We don't want truth. But as soon as Barnabas shows up, he, he just pours out this ministry of truth and love, and people start growing, and things start happening. It, it's, it's the empowering work of God's Spirit in a different, a very different kind of priority in terms of what ministry looks like and, and how we live it out with one another. And Barnabas doesn't do this because this is sort of his natural ability. It's because he is a man full of the Holy Spirit. Which could sound intimidating because I look at me and I go, I'm not sure I'd say that about Jeff Schultz. But that's not true of Barnabas himself naturally either. It's actually an encouraging word to us because if Barnabas can be like that, I can be like that. I can ask God to grow me in this way. And God can use me in other people's lives like this. Look at what this ministry of encouragement produces as well, this, this priority 
that's been changed for Barnabas. It changes his priority in how he even cares for these people. It leads him into an unusual humility. The end of verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. And if you or I were in that position, what might we do? Man, look at all the great stuff that God is doing through me. I've really got this figured out. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul to bring him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Do you see what's happening here? The humility that Barnabas has. God is doing this amazing thing, and he looks at himself, and somehow he's able to see, I don't have what these people need. I don't have all the gifts that that are going to help grow these people into everything that God wants them to be. I know who these people need. That guy Saul, he's brilliant. He's a fantastic Bible teacher. He knows the scriptures backwards and forwards. I'm going to go get him, and I want him to be a part of this ministry because these people need something that I don't have. And I want to celebrate that God has given that to someone else and bring them in to be a partner in this ministry. As we go forward in the book of Acts, if you'll notice this, right now it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, and over time it becomes Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Luke is, in fact, flipping the priority of their names and their ministries as we go through this book, and we never hear Barnabas being upset about this. Barnabas is the guy that the church from Jerusalem sends to, like, go be in charge and run this thing. And one of the first things he does is to say, I need somebody that has gifts that I don't have. And if that means Paul gets to be the platform person going forward, if that's what God's people need, that's awesome. There are things that I'm better at than my wife. And there are things that my wife is better at than me. There are things that Pastor Joey and Pastor Nathan are better at than I am. There are things and insights and perspectives that other men on the elder executive board have that I don't have. And and I am deeply thankful for that. That This is is what the gospel reorienting our priorities does. It, it, It encourages humility and partnership in the gospel that celebrates that God has gifted other people and out of all the uniqueness that he's brought together from people's backgrounds and experiences and gifts and talents, God grows this church to be amazing in a new way that that we haven't really seen before. Barnabas is is a good man full of the Holy Spirit. He's good at this ministry because he is filled with the paraclete. Does that word sound familiar at all? In in some of the older English translations of the New Testament, when Jesus is talking with his disciples near the end of his life, he's saying, I'm going to leave. And of course, they, they don't get it because like all of us disciples, we're slow to understand Jesus says, I I have to leave. I'm going to return to the Father, but I will send you another comforter, another advocate, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. The reason that Barnabas is 
empowered to do all this amazing ministry, the reason that he's known as a son of parakaleo is because he's filled with the paraclete. What does that mean? What does that look like if it's available to us? I think Barnabas is filled with the Holy Spirit because he's constantly letting the Holy Spirit speak into him who he is in Christ, what Jesus has done for him. He's bringing the Spirit's truth and wisdom and encouragement into all the situations and all the needs and all the fears and all the challenges and all the overwhelming ministry problems and all the difficulties of living in a, in a gigantic pagan city. He's bringing all of that to the Holy Spirit and asking for the Spirit's wisdom and empowerment and direction and help and presence in his life. The Holy Spirit is the one who points us to the first advocate. Jesus is our advocate before the Father. And what it means to be full of the Spirit is to also be full of the awareness of who Jesus is for us and who we are in him, what he's done for us, what the Father thinks about us, how the Spirit helps us confront all of our fears and our failures and grow us into confidence and faith and to grow us into a new identity and into humility and partnership. The more that we spend time asking and letting the Spirit speak into us, of who Jesus is for us and who he's made us to be and what it means to know him and walk with him, the more confidence and faith we have and the more empowerment from God's spirit we experience. The spirit right now is at work in God's people. If you belong to Jesus, he's at work in you to encourage, to parakaleo you, to grow you, to strengthen you. He's not saying, listen to your heart and trust yourself. And he's not saying, get it together and do your duty. He's saying, no, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and who he is and who you are in him. And that will empower you and encourage you and strengthen you to face anything. And then you grow to be that kind of an encourager for one another together with all of the uniquenesses and the gifts and passions and different abilities and experiences that God has brought into all of you, you have a part to play. You are part of this story. What God has made you to be is what other people in this body of believers need. You have this ministry of encouragement out of the identity that you have in Christ and the uniqueness that he's put into you to speak words of both truth and grace into each other's lives, to help us together grow into everything that God intends us to be. When the Holy Spirit, when the paraclete exhorts and encourages you, you encourage with the encouragement that you have received, and we grow together to be something unique and beautiful to the glory of Jesus, who is our life. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that uh, you give us this exhortation, this encouragement from your word, that the Spirit is speaking to us all the time about our Lord Jesus Christ, 
even as we have listened to your word today, even as we've sung songs of worship to you, even as we've prayed that, Father, in all those things, your spirit is at work, and we pray that your spirit will be at work all the more to make us a community of this kind of encouragement out of our identity in Jesus. A church filled with encouragement and encouragers, people who would speak the truth and love to one another. Thank you, Jesus, that you work in all of our backgrounds and gifts and cultures and experiences to do a new thing, to make us together something unique and beautiful that only you can produce, Jesus. Oh, do that work more and more in us as we walk with you to be filled with your spirit. We pray in your name, Lord. Amen.